Hello, and welcome to Tunneling Journal's podcast series, Our Underground Future, Episode 3, in partnership with Heron Connect, supplier for modern tunnel systems that pave the way for the future. To master every small and large underground construction project, the technology leader Heron Connect develops project-specific tunneling technologies that turn visions into reality. Visit heronconnect.com for more information, pioneering underground technologies. In this legally-themed episode, Professor Dix draws on almost 30 years global legal experience as a disaster investigator, lawyer and barrister with his candid insights and advice on empowering underground professionals in the use of risk assessment and risk engineering techniques to manage their personal professional legal risks. In our first discussion, we established that building the foundations for a dignified human future on a planet with finite resources required us in the underground infrastructure sector to deliver, to deliver the sanitation, the clean water, the transportation, the energy. In the second discussion, we explored your professional duties and how to protect yourself personally. We explored legal principles to be applied and what it is to be a professional so that you would be able to go forth and do your job with confidence. Do what you're paid to do and give you an insight into how you'll be judged when something goes wrong. So now, in this third discussion, I want to explore some of the useful tools that help you, you personally, do a lawful job, a job that allows you as an expert in the underground infrastructure to exercise judgment, a way for you to be able to demonstrate that you've actually brought your skills and experience to the table, whether you're designing, building, commissioning, operating those tunnels we so desperately need. So in this third exploration, we're going to talk about risk analysis. We're going to talk about probability and we're going to talk about predicting the future. And intimate with that is a discussion about standards. We can't do that in this discussion. It's just too difficult and we don't have enough time. So right now we're going to talk about risk assessments, probability and things like that. Now this standards and risk assessment is part of this trinity of how you demonstrate you've done your job properly. Not about whether you made the right decision, it's about how you made the decision and how you can demonstrate that you made the right decision, how you discharge your duties, how you prove you discharge your duties, how you prove to a third party who doesn't necessarily understand what you do that you did the good job. You did it the right way. So what does that mean? Well, let me start at the end. I'm going to start with a real court case, a real transcript, a a real judge, a case I'm intimately involved in. Imagine, imagine that there are people have died. They're dead. And you, you were responsible for not fitting a particular safety device, for not doing a particular safety activity on your project. A risk analysis forms part of your reasoning for not taking the particular action. You are in the witness box and this is how it goes. This is a real case. This is real words directly from the transcript. 
prosecutor. You set out there what is said to be a summary of the risk analysis provided and you've got various categories. It says risk per trip, risk per year, one accident every 1,492 years. Is this purporting to suggest and be treated as serious data to be acted upon, that the risk associated with the safety was a risk that would only occur once every 1,492 years? Or would you dismiss that immediately as being some improper statistical basis for assessment? Your answer, the engineer. Uh, there are uh, numbers to help set priorities. I, I really don't understand how they come up with the numbers. Judge, that makes two of us, engineer. You, sorry, what? Judge, that makes two of us. Question from prosecution. What it suggests on its face is a very low level of risk. In fact, it is only a risk of, as I understand it, one accident occurring every 1,492 years. Do you put that forward seriously as being a valid statistical basis to assess the risk of the safety devices? Objection. This is your, your barrister objecting here. My object to that, the, the paragraph's quite clear. He's, he's simply setting out the material in the report that he was provided with. Prosecutor, the question is whether there is some point arising out of it. I'm trying to divine what assistance it is suggested this particular extract from a risk memorandum serves. Judge, I think probably the answer is doesn't help much in understanding this at all. He doesn't understand how they come to these particular figures, nor does anyone else, I suspect. You, the engineer. I certainly can't go through the theory that produced these sets of numbers. That report is certainly a report that's been discussed at length in these proceedings to date. And the report that was made available to me sometime in about seven years ago, those numbers were presented to me and I acted in one way or another on the numbers. In acting on the numbers, uh, I, I didn't have a real knowledge, uh, nor do I wish to try and begin to explain the theory that produces those sets of numbers, other than to say that they can be used to set priorities in one form or another. If somebody told me the risk was one in 1,492 years, it, it doesn't mean that the incident is not going to happen tomorrow or the next day. Prosecutor, indeed. It happened within seven years of the report. You. Engineer, uh, I think, uh, yeah, it was written about seven years ago. Uh, yeah. Look, look, if an individual looks at a set of numbers of that kind and draws a simple conclusion that circumstances you're trying to evaluate is not going to happen for 1,492 years, they clearly really don't understand what the numbers are all about. Prosecution. It is a piece of absurdity, isn't it? to suggest that statistics should be put forward and acted upon in evaluating the risk seven years ago with that control safety device. You, engineer. I wouldn't feel comfortable saying it was a piece of absurdity. There's an international group or body of learning and expertise and advice that uses these sorts of numbers on a daily basis on all levels of the industry to manage risk. I could say that I simply don't accept those numbers as being a simple prima facie case for saying that risk is not an issue because you've got 1,492 years written against it. Prosecution. 
Can we safely leave it on this basis? The authority and yourself did not rely on that number for not doing anything or making any decision about fixing the fault. Uh, you. Uh, no, it didn't. Prosecution. And nor did anyone else in the organisation that you're aware of rely on the statistic as a relevant piece of information as to whether anything should or should not be done concerning the trains. Engineer, you. Essentially, I can't speak on everybody else's behalf, but from my point of view, there were other influences on me at the time of the decision about seven years ago. Prosecutor, Your Honour, I see the time. Judge, is it an example, I wonder, of common sense or intelligent application of these models going out the window when you get this ridiculous sort of nonsense? Really? I suppose a large sum of money was expended in getting such a report. Would that be right? I just can't believe such nonsense, quite frankly. Luncheon adjournment. Get the picture? Could be you. If you're going to use risk-based modelling, risk analysis, statistical analysis, you better understand what it's about or you could be that engineer under a cross-examination like that. To understand how to put this in perspective, we have to go back to first principles. Engineering, engineering is not an exact science. In fact, it's known as a heuristic method, and a heuristic method is any approach to problem solving, learning or discovery that employs practical methods, not guaranteed to be optimal, not guaranteed to be perfect, not guaranteed to be logical or rational, but instead sufficient for reaching an immediate goal. Where the system is complex, and it's always complex in the subsurface, finding an optimal solution is impossible and always impractical. So looking at solving the problem is what we do. It's about judgment. It's about bringing your experience to the table and your learning to the table. It's not about one in 1,572 years. That is just a tool to help you put things in perspective. It is not an exact science. Don't be afraid to put it in perspective. If you don't put it in perspective, you are vulnerable because if someone like me, when I've got my barrister's hat on, comes and cross-examines you, I'm going to demonstrate that you actually don't know what you're doing. So think about what you're doing here. You're using a tool to help you solve a problem. You can't save the world if you can't look after yourself. You've got to be able to look after yourself and that means doing your job properly and professionally. And that means using tools like this, risk assessments responsibly. And this is how we're going to do it. So let's put risk engineering into perspective. One could rightly argue that it's the latest generation of fortune telling. It's about predicting the future. It's about helping prioritise our limited resources. It's not perfect. It's a framework for helping us make 
decisions. It's not exact. And the trouble, the challenge, the temptation is to hide behind these tools as a substitute for exercising our professional judgment. Instead of using it as a tool to assist in decision-making, you put it forward as the explanation for your decision-making, and it's not. Undue reliance on a risk assessment to make a complex risk decision is a bad strategy, and if scrutinised, can bring you into personal disrepute. And as I say, if I'm cross-examining you, that's my aim. Used responsibly, risk assessments provide excellent support for complex risk decision-making because they help. They're a tool. They're there to help us. So what are the lessons? The lessons from me are simple. Be critical of the tool. Don't fudge the results. Be humble and observant. Compare your modelled results with what you've observed through your career, what's reflected in the literature. Wise is better than smart. Of course, there are some frameworks for risk based decision making and risk management. Uh, Australian standard uh, AS ISO 31000, uh, not a bad framework. There's others. I'm just using that as an example. Uh, and they set up a nice framework. You know, you establish the context, identify the risks, analyze them, evaluate them, treat them, monitor, go round and round. Looks really good, a bit like a Venn diagram. We're all very comfortable with that because we're engineers and that's great but it's just a process. And then you get a big table. I'm not going to bore you completely senseless going through one of these tables, you know, where we divide it up into green, yellow, red, or however you want to do it. And grown men and women argue with each other and it's death at 10 paces over whether you use a, you know, a five by four matrix or a seven by six matrix. My goodness, it misses the whole point. Don't get sucked into the process vortex. Don't get drawn into the totally thankless mire of arguing about the process. If you don't understand the system, you're trying to understand and make a decision about. You've got to understand as best you can the complexities of the system you're trying to analyze. My number one lesson in risk management is stick to basics. Focus on what's real, not what's imagined in some sort of weird thought experiment. If you can't understand the risk analysis, it's probably not true. The risk analysis should be based upon facts. And if it's not based upon facts, it should be based upon some degree of judgment. You should understand it because your role is to help and actually make decisions in delivering, maintaining operating this underground infrastructure. And before I mentioned the analogy between this tool and fortune telling, isn't it interesting that when you look at the descriptions of fortune tellers, mystics and what have you, they had tools, we didn't really understand them, a lot of hocus pocus, 
hocus-pocus and, uh, you know, all that pomp and ceremony. Come on, isn't that what often the, the risk analysis is? We, we, we're a bit bashful. We don't want to actually say, hey, I don't understand what a 10 to the minus 15 number really is. Step above the hocus-pocus. Be an intelligent professional. Understand what's going on with the risk analysis, a tool to help you make a decision, a tool to help you discharge your special duties, special duties you get paid to perform for this underground infrastructure. Now, what are the sorts of things you need to focus on so you understand it? Well, risk analysis is a cousin of probability theory. And here's the newsflash. Like normal distribution stuff that we learnt at university or perhaps in high school, not applicable. Because typically the sorts of things that are going to cause us trouble are low frequency, high consequence events. They're not sitting on the sweet little bell curve. Things that matter for us, like collapses, inundations, subsidence, fires, crashes, explosions, implosions, buoyant poisonous gas, non-buoyant poisonous gas, all that stuff doesn't sit on a normal distribution curve. We need to be mindful and thinking about what our risk analysis is and its limits. The challenge with that conceptual basis is the regulatory frameworks in which we all work, so the laws, doesn't matter where you are in the world, usually set some imaginary arbitrary level of safety as being safe enough. And typically there's some sort of a numerical manipulation sitting behind it. Not always. Sometimes it's standards. We'll talk about that next time. But normally some sort of a magical sort of manipulation of data, the deems safe enough. So in the EU, what's required is to demonstrate that whatever it is that you're proposing, the approach pursued, leads to at least the same level of safety as what's been stipulated, usually in some sort of a standard. And that's found in Article 2.3.6 of the EU Regulation 402 of 2013, Reference 6. Or if in the UK, maybe you might get uh, under the, uh, I don't know, UK's Health and Safety Executive and their advice is where there's a relevant, recognised good practice, we expect duty holders to follow it. And if they want to do something different, they must be able to demonstrate to our satisfaction that the measures they propose to use are at least as effective in controlling the risk, hence some sort of a risk assessment. If you're in Asia, um, the SVARP principle, um, which might appear in the regulations. A court may, considering standards to determine what is appropriate practice, but, 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 it also recognises that a bad standard is not a defence to performing bad engineering. Have regard to an approved code or practice or injury standard as evidence of what is known about a hazard or risk, risk assessment or risk control, and may elect to rely on code or standard in determining what is reasonably practicable in the circumstances to which the code relates. In other words, again, what's the code say, but what's the risk assessment say? And, you know, somewhere else, uh, it doesn't matter where, I'm just giving you a flavour, a person who designs, commissions, manufactures, supplies, installs or erects anything 
and who knows or ought reasonably to know that the thing is to be used as or in connection with rail infrastructure or rolling stock must ensure so far as reasonably practicable that the thing is safe if it is used for the purpose for which it was designed, commissioned, manufactured, supplied, installed or erected. In other words, we're back to doing the risk assessment again. And what's reasonably practicable? Again, back to the risk assessment again. You have to balance up all matters, weighing them up. The likelihood of the hazard, the risk of the event occurring, the degree of harm that might result from the hazard or the risk, what the person concerned knows or ought reasonably to know about, the hazard, the risk, the ways of eliminating, minimising the risk, the availability and the suitability of ways to eliminate or minimise the risk. And after assessing the extent of the risk and the available ways of eliminating or minimising the risk, the cost associated with available ways of eliminating or minimising the risk. Risk assessment, again, right? You get the picture. Everywhere we're looking in the world doesn't quite sit exactly the same in each country, but it's always the same spin. There's always this reference to the risk analysis. There's always this desire to use the risk tools to perform some sort of a either absolute, as in is it safe enough, or comparative analysis. So that's easy for the regulators to say. It's easy for the law to say. It's easy for the EU to say. It's easy for the the laws to say. It's easy for the judge to say. It's easy for the prosecution to say in cross-examination. It's even fairly easy for me to say. So how are you going to do this? How are you going to question the tools? Well, Actually, as I suggested to you before, statistical analysis and observational based judgment is just a part of scientific method and it's pretty much common sense. And as Pierre-Simon Laplace famously said, probability theory is nothing but common sense reduced to calculation. So our risk analysis isn't perfect It's not about perfect knowledge. It's not an exact sport. It's not even about an exact number. It's not a yes or a no. You can't hide in it. And I see over and over again reports written as if you can. You can't. You can't hide behind the risk analysis. The risk analysis is there as a tool. Please, please, please spend a moment to think about this so that if you're asked a question, you can put this tool's answers into perspective. Because, 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 if the future is not as you predicted, it doesn't mean your risk-based decision-making failed. It just means you predicted the future wrong and that's okay. We are in the unique position professionally that so long as we can explain how it is that our prediction of the future is wrong, how it is that we got it wrong, it's okay. Because as explained in our discussions in the second discussion, we're not judged in retrospect. We have to explain how we came to our decision at the time and your risk analysis is part of that dialogue. It's how you explain what you did. And you might recall, I quoted this before, those who hire exports are not justified in expecting infallibility, 
but can expect only reasonable care and competence. They purchase a service, not insurance. Your risk analysis doesn't have to get the future right. Your risk analysis has to be proper, professional and prudent. And it has to be used in perspective, but you can get it wrong for all the right reasons. The most important case on this subject was actually from the United Kingdom back in 90, well, in 1949, Edwards National Coal Board. And that's actually where the whole ALARP principle came. I know ALARP is not used in all countries, but it captures the essence of what we're discussing here. And in that case, the court said, in every case, it is the risk that has to be weighed against the measures necessary to eliminate the risk. The greater the risk, no doubt, the less will be the weight to be given to the factor of cost and that a computation must be made in which the quantum of risk is placed on one scale and the sacrifice, whether in time, money or trouble involved in the measures necessary for averting the risk is placed on the other. And that, if it be shown that there is a gross disproportion between them, the risk being insignificant in relation to the sacrifice, then the person upon whom the duty is laid discharges the burden of proving that compliance was not reasonably practicable. In other words, do your risk analysis correctly. Be able to put the risk into perspective and you've done your job properly, even if the very issue that you're trying to mitigate against occurs. So keep these risk assessments real. So qualitative, quantitative risk assessments, my goodness, there's thousands of them out there. I'm not going to go through them in detail. As I said, I want a framework for you that works. Quantitative. Now, quantitative risk assessment, the seduction, the thing that gets us drawn into the quantitative risk assessment is it involves numbers. We love numbers. We get a number. It must be good. It's a number. And if it's a number, we can do things with it on a computer. So that must be good because that's clever. And if it's done on a computer in a way that's a little bit obscure, that's even better because that shows how clever we are. Can't be right, can it? The trouble with quantitative risk assessment is in the detail. It's that for the most part, we don't have enough data for a perfect risk analysis. There's just not enough data. Often, we don't understand the system. So we're not even quite sure what the data is that we require. We often don't use probability correctly, what actually we're talking about with probability. And we don't really deal well with statistical dependencies. That is the interrelationship between different factors which contribute to this highly complex system we're trying to model. And sometimes we even add cause and effect probabilities together. So in fact, we overestimate the bad things. We overestimate the undesirable. And we perform average calculations on things like variance to give the impression that our analysis is of more substance than it is. And then in the end, the systems are so complicated that we're modeling, we don't even notice 
the ill numerical conditioning, the the vortex, the the factors inside there which make all of our modelling irrelevant. So lack of data means have an eye on the information that you know as a professional learned person you should have available to do the analysis. As it's sometimes said, it's like being up a creek without a paddle. Risk analysis is the creek, data is the paddle. Without sufficient data, what are you going to do? You can get a result, but the result's nonsense. The lack of data mightn't be your fault. The problem is that for the most part, for a whole range of very predictable reasons, we don't carry out sufficient sensitivity studies. And it's the failure to carry out the sensitivity analysis by varying the conceptual and numerical inputs that means when we come up with an answer where we've got limited data, we're not actually being truthful to the reader, to ourselves, to whoever it is that's going to rely upon this report because we're not actually disclosing the limitations in the risk data as it's revealed. And there are ways around it. You can acquire data through measurement, but you can also get it through expert opinion. And of course, measurement's better, but if there's not enough empirical data, expert opinion is necessary. I know it's unfashionable. It's unfashionable in a time of computers that to actually say someone's opinion is necessary. But there is wisdom out there and there is a place for wisdom. And I know that there are all sorts of issues with opinion. And of course, if I'm cross-examining someone, I'm going to explore them. But there are also issues with false claims to accuracy. There are also issues with claiming to understand a process and not having enough data or even a detailed understanding of the complex, the complexities of it. So what's a good example? Say fires, fires in road and rail tunnels, lots of data around, lots of analysis. I see it probably on a weekly basis. But the data, how can you be using data from some Russian train that's made of horsehair and bitumen and comparing that with a fire that occurs in Hong Kong on some of their hardened rolling stock? Hello? And yet we do it. Just Google. um, Hey, Siri, Google uh, metro train fires. Have a look. See what the results come up. Hey, Siri, Google road tunnel fires. It's similar there. The historical data isn't put into historical context. It forms part of a database for doing the risk analysis. The world changes and it doesn't just get better. Have you noticed in recent years how clients, often in areas with new metros, want these really fancy trains with really beautiful plastics? I'll call them plastics. I know it's not politically correct to call it that. But they're not like the Hong Kong. Hong Kong rolling stock, that really nice but uh, rather austere rolling stock. You've got to understand the detail. If you're going to do a risk analysis, you've got to understand the detail. The devil is in the detail and us as technical people delivering underground infrastructure have to explore it. And if there's not enough data, 
What's wrong with saying things like, I think the tunnel's safe, or I think the tunnel needs some improvements, and going and having a look at the weak points from your perspective. Isn't that what expert opinion's all about? I'm not saying risk assessment's bad, not at all. Of course it's not. It's excellent. It's a wonderful tool, but don't put it and use it as an excuse for not doing your job properly. Come on. Being paid to be professional, be professional. And of course, clients, if you're listening, please, 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 please. Of course, if you demand a number, you're going to get a number. Uh, In Europe, I won't mention the country, it's very popular. Uh, The number has to be, I think it's uh, less than 0.8. I don't even know what the unit is. No one does. But as long as you come up with that, that answer, that's considered safe enough. Are you kidding me? I understand why it's useful, but there's a place for judgment. And yes, numbers and number crunching forms are part of it, but we are professional people exercising judgment and we include in our judgment wisdom. Don't be afraid to put your wisdom forward. The most stupid example recently is where I saw beautifully written, lovely piece of work, great brands on it, excellent authors, a risk assessment demonstrating that it's safer to evacuate people in a tunnel onto a railway track than onto an existing elevated side walkway from the existing rolling stock, which has been built to exactly match the elevated walkway, i.e. better to let people climb down the outside of the train, climb down the ladders on the outside to the tracks to get to a place of comparative safety. Better to do that than to go out the side doors and use the elevated walkway. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? We have to stand up and be bold and express our opinions based upon our training and experience and wisdom. If the modelling has simplified the data, if the the modelling hasn't done the sensitivity analysis correctly, if the modelling produces such dubious results, say so. That's our job. We're going to deliver this infrastructure for humanity, small planet, a lot of us. We have to do our job professionally, and that means aggressively, aggressively reviewing the tools that we rely on, including the risk analysis. It's got its place. It's an excellent tool but intellectually understand what it is and what it is not. Software. If you don't have the right software and you try doing the analysis of risk, get some ugly results. Why? Because the numbers are so tiny. Are you kidding me? Again, the numbers we're dealing with are often down in the sort of 10 to the minus 15s and what have you, like tiny little numbers. And then we get drawn into some debate about whether our incy-wincy tiny little number on the left column is slightly bigger or smaller than incy-wincy tiny little number on the right-hand column. And we haven't done the sensitivity analysis and there are inherent errors in the software anyway. No one talks about it. 
And one of the other fascinating intellectual things to disturb our risk analysis is that probability isn't necessity. You can't imply a return time on events. And one of the incredibly mysterious things about our universe, and one which I do not understand, I, I, I do not, I, I've got no way of understanding this, is that modern observations of catastrophic, low probability, high consequence events and other unlikely events suggest that these events tend to accumulate. Benoit Mandelbrot uh, has looked into this. Um, there's also information on the Koch set. Google it. There's two big branches in mathematics at the moment. Uh, fractal theory, theory of catastrophes. Have a look at it. We're seeing, for whatever reason, the universe sneaks up on us and likes doing bad things in groups. It likes disasters to accumulate. Remember I said before, we're not talking about normal distribution. Well, here it is, smack bang in the middle of the universe right now. Events tend to be cumulative. Think about it. Think about what happened in Europe with the various road tunnel disasters. Think about what's happened in, um, in Hong Kong in the underground. Think about what's happened in countries you're aware of. There tends to be, for reasons which are not exactly clear, accumulations of disasters. That's not normal distribution. So what, what, am, I, what am I getting at? Hear the theme. I'm saying to you, please, 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 you want to contribute to the planet. You want to deliver this incredibly important infrastructure for our humanity. Look after yourself and critically review the tools, the use of the tools, how you use the tools, so that when you make your decisions, when you're explaining your decisions, when something goes wrong, things haven't gone according to plan, as I described in the legal discussion, your use of risk analysis, of statistical tools is in perspective and you're not yet another professional who falls for the bullet of not exercising professional judgment, of standing behind and hiding behind a risk-based tool that is not a substitute for making a decision yourself. It's just a tool. And if you don't appreciate that, you run the risk of being unnecessarily pessimistic and diverting the world's limited resources unnecessarily into risk mitigation strategies that are actually unnecessary, of diverting limited resources that could go into a hospital, that might go into schooling, that might go into so many other of the socially important activities that our limited resources can be diverted to. You run the risk of being another professional waving their hand and inappropriately diverting resources unnecessarily and inefficiently. And we can't afford that. 
actually can't afford it. That's why we're talking about saving the world, humanity, and making sure that we deliver the infrastructure that our societies need. So don't be bashful about having your own opinion, an opinion to critically review the risk analysis tool. Don't be bashful about putting the modelling into perspective and in talking, expressing and conceding that despite the impressive looking calculations, there are limitations on this tool, just like there are limitations on other tools when we're dealing with complex multidimensional systems, which are imperfectly understood by necessity, but we're out there delivering them because that's our mandate. We're doing the right thing for all the right reasons, but sometimes we just get it wrong. Risk assessments are a tool for decision-making. They have to be used wisely as a tool for exercising judgment, not a justification for poor judgment or a means of justifying a predetermined outcome. Be critical of the data. Be aware of oversimplification of complex systems. Risk assessments are a tool to help us make informed decisions about risk management in a resource-limited world. Risk assessments are not a substitute for sound expert decision-making about low-frequency complex risk issues. They are there to assist us. They're not a substitute for us. Don't fudge the results. Don't reverse engineer the results. If you do, I'll find you or someone like me will find you. They're just a tool to assist you, a tool to assist you making complex decisions. This discussion wouldn't be complete if we didn't link to our discussion of risk assessments standards. Standards, risk management, and of course, the obligations on you legally in the discharge of your duties. That trinity, that trinity of law, risk assessments, and standards is completed in the next instalment of this series where I examine risk assessments and standards in the context of the legal obligations upon us all. Till we talk again, enjoy, enjoy those tunnels, enjoy that underground infrastructure. That was internationally acclaimed underground expert, Professor Arnold Dix, lawyer, scientist and engineer. Having now explored the use of risk-based tools in a global legal framework, Tunneling Journal's next podcast with Professor Arnold Dix will examine the role, limitations and strengths of standards and standard practices in empowering underground professionals to make robust and defensible expert judgments and decisions. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Tunneling Journal in partnership with Heron Connect. Heron Connect Tunneling Technology paves the way for continuous progress of underground infrastructure. Visit heronconnect.com for more information. Pioneering underground technologies.